Hello, I'm Phil Preston and welcome to The Purpose Edge where we delve into the career and life stories of our guests and at the end I'll add some extra thoughts around the themes we've covered. My guest today is Danielle Dobson who has worked in a steel mill in Italy. She's lived in Beijing and is currently raising three boys solo and she has a strong sense of purpose in the work she does which involves decoding and recoding but we're not talking about computers here. We're talking about something else and we'll get to that shortly. So welcome to the show, Danielle. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me. I'm so, so excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you on. And I've had a few guests who grew up in Melbourne and you're another one. So tell me about what it was like growing up in Melbourne. Mm, well, I have to be honest, it was a bit out of Melbourne. It was semi-rural and it's the Yarra Valley. So as a tiny little blink and you miss it town in the in the Yarra Valley but it was way before it was cool to live there this was in the 80s so it was pre-vineyards and things like that so I loved it I loved the community vibe I worked in the local fruit shop I worked on local farms like picking packing sorting fruit and all that sort of thing fruit and veggies but I couldn't wait to escape (laughs) (laughs) as soon as I had a job I was It was just so far from everything. So here's here's an indication of of sort of the, you know, remoteness. The train line ended in Lilydale and then we had to catch a 20 to 30-minute bus from there in terms of public transport. So that is kind of part of it. So you had to have a car, you had to have your parents drive you everywhere uh, or you just didn't have that mobility unless you hung out with your local friends and rode your bike. So I guess I saw it as restricting and I wanted to be where all the action was. So that's why. Okay. And, and when you're young, what does the action look like? Mm, so <laughs> it was working in, I guess, when I did move, I was 20, I think, 20. I got my first job when I was finishing my last year of uni. So I was very fortunate to have that opportunity. So It was, say, living near the city, being able to go out to, you know, pubs, clubs, uh, restaurants, to be able to walk to places or catch the tram. It was just, like, life-changing, mind-blowing to be able to do that not spend so much time on travelling. So I love that. I love being around people, like, diverse people, um, you know, noise, lights, all those sort of things. Well, that's totally understandable when you're that age. Now, you did tell me you played AFL when you were young in the under-11s for, mm-hmm. I think, was it the Seville Blues? Yep, Seville Blues. Blues. Seville yeah. Blues, local say Seville, yeah. <laughs> Seville, okay. And yep. you were the only girl playing in the whole AFL association or junior association, I guess. What was that like? It was great. It was a great experience. I, I will be honest, I found out um, how many games you needed to play to get a um, participation trophy um, and it was five and I made it through the five. But what what actually drew me in was that I had been playing AFL cricket, all of those sort of things with my brothers and the people in the street since I was little. And my I was very fortunate looking back now, that my parents never uh, boxed me up in terms of gender. So I was the eldest of three children, two younger brothers. And also I was a very much an active mover outside type of person. So I just saw kicking the footy as something that, that we did. And my dad was a secretary of the junior football club. So our Sundays were football, 
junior football from under sevens to under 15s. We were there all day, wherever it was. And, you know, my friend and I would do things like the, the canteen, the take-ins at the gate, selling raffle tickets, doing the time time thing, like blowing the horn for the quarters. And I just thought one time, why, you know, why aren't I out there playing? Like, why am I here? I didn't th- think of it at the time as support roles, but I was basically doing all the support roles and not actually getting out there on the field. And so I asked my dad, I said, oh, do you think you could talk to the coach? And my bro- my younger brother is only 16 months younger. He was in the under-11 side too. So I was in there with him. And, um, and yeah, my, and my dad said, yeah, no worries, talk to the coach. Uh, got it sorted. So I just went to training. And I'll never forget my first game because, you know, girls tend to grow quicker than boys, like earlier on. We'll shoot up first and then the boys catch up. So I was the tallest in the team. So I had the very important role of being Ruck, the person who goes up for the ball at the start at the centre bounce. And I'll never forget that first time where we were playing Belgrave, which are Collingwood colours. And if you're a Melbourne supporter like me or basically any other uh, Victorian club supporter, you hate Collingwood. So he, he was opposite me and he says to his mate, uh, he's, you know, Ruck Rover and he's Rover, oh, check this girl out. This will be so easy. And I don't know what happened, but it triggered something inside me. And I'm like, I don't care what it takes. I'm going to get this ball. And the umpire blew the whistle, bounced it, or they threw it up because I was under 11s, and I got it. And so I think from that point on, or maybe it had been happening all the time, I would use those kind of opportunities where people were doubting me or where it could be potentially a challenging situation as fuel to do better. Mm. Oh, congratulations. And uh, <laughs> and what I love is that you were a real pioneer there because it's only fairly recently, and I say recently, last 10 years or so, we've seen explosion in, for example, AFL and the Women's Code, and we now have a national professional competition there. Um, the other day, I was watching a documentary about our women's football or soccer team called the Matildas, mm. um, and we've got the World Cup coming up soon. So how how do you see that transformation that's occurred since you played AFL was an under eleven to where women's sport is today? As you're saying all those things, I was just jumping for joy inside because it is absolutely brilliant that women have these opportunities now. Because I guess so someone like me, I had the support of my family and and my dad in particular and my mum. Not everyone has that. So there's not you know, those pathways. So having these opportunities, these pathways, support, investment, financial investment, opens up a whole, you know, world of possibilities. Because when you start with something like sport, where you can see people um, achieving at a high level, at, at an elite level, people cheering them, you know, the ultimate sort of gladiatorial kind of, you know, event that's when you start earning a lot of respect where things start, you know, people see things through a different lens and they start to see, you know, all that that brilliance, that strength, that power. Uh, so it's, a, it's an excellent way for you know, people to be able to see different people, women, in a different context. So I absolutely love it, not to mention the personal benefits that must be 
um, being received by the women who are playing, like being part of a team, moving together as a team, achieving, winning, losing, learning, all of those things are on an on elite level, higher platform. It's and it it and so I just sort of to continue that, I looked at a study um oh, probably two years ago in America and it found that the something like don't quote me, but around about 90% of female CEOs had had uh, had played high level or elite sport. Wow. So that go, that says a lot. So that's another reason why I love what's happening with women's sport as well. And for your boys who I think are all teenagers now, mm-hmm. is that correct? correct? Do they watch women's sport as well as men's sport? I'm assuming they watch sport at all. That should be the first question. Yeah, good question. Lots of sport, in particular basketball. They watch a lot of basketball um, and AFL, uh, and they are all right into the basketball. And my partner's got two sons, also teenagers. They're all into it too, so uh, the draft and everything like that. So what they do watch a little bit of women's sport, so they're not into rugby uh, or, you know, that type of football. They, they will watch women's soccer and they'll watch women's cricket. So my eldest one's into cricket. They do not watch as much women's AFL or women's basketball. And here's here's the thing, and I have conversations with them about this a lot. They don't see it as competitive. So here's the thing with the basketball. It we can say it's a it's a game. It's a you know back and forth in basketball. It's the same game, but really. I think a lot of reason why people watch it are for the thrills and spills. So there's a lot of dunking and stuff like that. They say women's basketball doesn't dunk and they don't dunk and whatever. So it's I think it's what they want out of it. If they want the razzle-dazzle spectator kind of um, adrenaline rush, they won't watch women's sport. Yeah. So you clearly had a very supportive and encouraging family environment and that takes us on to where you went next you you sort of grew up you mentioned the 1980s you've carbon dated yourself there danielle <laughs> but I'm, I'm happy to say i i probably grew up a little bit before you and you sounds like you entered the workforce around the time of the 1990s and the mm-hmm. recession in fact probably the last proper or normal recession we had in this country mm-hmm. um to be honest so so what happened in that process of you transitioning into the workforce and what challenges came up mm. So that's a great question. So the thick of of that recession, so the early 1990s, I was still I was in uni and I was it was actually fortunate for my parents as I was out of school. So they only had to pay school fees for two my younger brothers. And it really hit our family hard because my dad had his own printing and typesetting business and he was barely paying himself. He paid all his people especially his two top designers, Su Yin and Louise, because uh, they bring in, in all the work. So he paid them and everyone else. My mum got straight back to an eight-day fortnight. So we're basically living off her um, salary as a clerk um, in, in finance, like a payroll clerk. Um, so, and I was in university and and I was doing an accounting degree Um you know, business degree majoring in accounting. And what I was noticing was all the people that I was going to 
the you know the, the group of people I was going to uni with the guys who had gone to the private schools um who had the the dads because it was all dads in those days mostly with all the connections and the big accounting firms regardless of their marks or their extra extracurricular achievements they were getting the jobs that were like gold. So instead of having your big accounting firms taking in a couple of hundred uh, graduates, they were taking four. So you had to be at the top of your game or you had to be well-connected. So what that, that and I remember so clearly that feeling of um, lack, of not having enough, of not having what you want, of living right on the edge with money, like because I was still living with my family because I went to um, Deakin University uh, so I could commute. So on the bus and the train, <laughs> all my little Corolla. But what it, what it taught me in that period of time was that, you know, in terms of I didn't want to have a business because I saw what my dad was going through. I didn't want to have a job like my mum because, you know, you could just get cut back any time. You're at the mercy of, you know, um, the bosses of a company. And what I did learn also is that I wanted to make sure that I built my own connections throughout life and that, that if I had children, that I'd send them to the best possible school that I could afford to plug them into the network. Um, but I knew that was too late for me. I had to make my own network. And what I also vowed to myself at that time was that I would never let my own children go through what I was going through and what I saw my parents going through because uh, there was no end of arguments. And, you know, I thought it was all about the finances and that sort of stuff. So I'm like, all right, if I can have that part working well, uh, then we can avoid this. And I promised myself I'd be ready for the next recession. So I was already a hard worker, but I worked so hard from there to just really financially uh, set myself up, build connections and networks to make sure that there was that support or that those options during these times when you feel like you have none. And we look at the current jobs market and, and what the economy is like generally, and it's a pretty there's an abundance of need for workers in all sorts of areas, which is so different to what that environment was like. And mm -hmm. unless you live through that, I keep reminding people, this This came up recently, I was reminding someone that Westpac nearly failed in that, that time period. The Victorian mm -hmm. government nearly went under. Mm -hmm. So it was, when you look back today, you go, really? Could that, could that have happened? And I want to draw on that point of, people talk about is you know is it what you know or who you know and and that's what you were you're getting at there it would make i think your approach is you know it makes sense to expand your network and who you know is important you can't expect to get by purely with what you know is that correct absolutely yeah and and I'd extend that an amazing person, um, Judith Beck, in her book, um, I think it's called No Sex at Work. <laughs> something like that. It's really great. It's great. great Good book. advice, yes. <laughs> but she means talking about gender, really. Um, and uh, incredible woman. She said it's, it's not who you know 
but how you use their help. It's not only who you know, but how you use their help. So you can know a whole lot of people um, and have them in your network, but it's knowing when to ask them for for help or a connection. So you can use the word help, or you can uh, you know use the word favor, connection, whatever it is. Uh, knowing who you have there, um, and and everyone's different in terms of how they operate in this sense. And and what I found through my research, through attending low, uh, I reckon twenty plus different types of women's networking groups, is the difference between and 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 you know, mixed gender and ones as well, is the 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 ones that that were really successful with women were when there was a higher purpose involved. So you're all there to network, but you're also there to raise money to um, economically empower women in Australia or beyond. Uh, so it's it's like when there feels like there's a, a more of a purpose behind it. So I looked at that and I thought that is a common theme and pattern, I think, with networking with women and maybe not as many, as many men because it's sort of like more programmed in and it happens organically. But if you can tie into another purpose beyond networking with women or beyond, you know, working, um, you know, something beyond, you know, what might be perceived as personal ambition, uh, then women are more likely to do the networking, if you like. Um, so it's got to, it's got to be something that isn't self-serving, doesn't feel like it's self-serving. And also, you know, where there's a fair exchange of value. So where one person's not doing all the connecting and, and all the work, but there's this fair exchange of value. I think mm. that works well. I guess a lot of networking can be based around common interest, like football mm. or something else or, um, you know, males of a certain, with certain characteristics and wealth, for example. Mm, absolutely. So, yeah. so um, that is disempowering, or it must feel inequitable between the situation where you're seeing people getting the better roles in companies because of, say, a feature like wealth, which might not be earned from the the individual's perspective, um, maybe from the the parents' perspective because they have the wealth, but the individual is getting a leg up because of that. Mm. that an issue. Oh, absolutely. It drives me insane. It's like, and, and the interesting thing is they didn't study hard. They weren't getting good marks. It was all um, handed to to them. And that, and once again, it fueled me though. It was like, well, this isn't fair. I, I don't know what I can do on a, on a larger scale, but from an individual and personal point of view, I can throw everything I have at this and I can be smart about how I do it. So it's not just working really hard, but it is speaking to the, the these people, um, making friends with them. Um, and you know me, it's not, I, I don't make friends just to suck people dry. There's always something that I give back in return or, you know, it's part of the relationship. So getting to know who's who in the zoo, um, being curious, uh, working out, you know, the rules of the game, um, the parameters, you know, where I sit within it, who's top dog in, in this arena, who's, you know, the favourite child, you know, working out all of the, the kind of mapping of a situation. And, and that's, like I said, systemically there's other stuff that I do with that now in my work, 
But from an individual point of view, uh, understanding, you know, what's what and being curious and open, I think that's the key. Sounds like part of the decoding and recoding process, which we will come to (laughs) soon. Just give us a sense for your career path then uh, from there up to the next phase we'll look at shortly, which is which is in Beijing. But what what happened between getting into the workforce and that uh, Beijing experience? Mm, so uh, I I guess I was on this like fast track. I just wanted to go hard and fast um, in my career. So I started off in business services. So I did everything there that you can possibly imagine, and then worked in corporate. So for engineering services company. Uh, we worked on the one of our projects was the, the Anaconda Nickel Mine over in WA, and which, is, other- which was Twiggy Forest, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It was a um, massive project for our company. Uh, so many lessons learned about you know growing too quickly, not managing it, you know, falling from gro- all this sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, where I had head office roles there in all sorts of different everything you can imagine with accounting. I did it there. Um, and then went to the UK for a good time, not a long time, with my work colleagues, which very uh, surprisingly for those times were all women. So my, uh, so our manager, um, so the F, the financial director, he was um, a guy, and then underneath her, the finance manager, and then the rest of our team, management, accounting, financial accounting, were all women. So there's five of us. Um, but unfortunately for work, we all decided to go to the UK together, um, staggered over a period of time. So worked in for other uh, another engineering services company there and um, ended up on that steel mill in Italy and uh, met my ex now ex-husband and, yeah, thinking I was there for a good time, not a long time, um, and, yeah, eight years later came back to Australia. So via... Yeah, Italy, lived in America, had my first son there, um, did internal audit there, worked for a Silicon Valley-based company. And, um, yeah, one week I was in corporate America, the next week I was a mum because they don't take much time off um, beforehand. So that was a massive change, massive change uh, there. And, yeah, I had I had time time at home because my ex husband was travelling all the time with his work. Um, my parents were in, uh, family interstate and overseas, so sort of started off doing it by myself and sort of continued doing it by myself. And yeah, that was that was massive that transition. Um, but the interesting thing is that I found that I bought all of my strengths and skills that I developed professionally. And you might be thinking, what? Um, but to uh, raising my son uh, because I didn't, I guess, switch off any of those, you know, skills and, and strengths that I'd um, built. So I actually had spreadsheets for sleep times and breastfeeding times and all the rest of it. Um, oh, my God. Sometimes I think I'm a little bit anal about the way I go, go about my <laughs> logistics, but I think you've got one up on me there. Yeah. Well, it was it was kind of all I knew, you know, calories burnt in the gym, all the rest of it. So um, I Hang just on, thought... were there debits and credits to do with sleep? <laughs> now, that's something I didn't monitor because I hardly got much at all. I thought if I knew how much, it would be depressing. Um, so didn't monitor that. But food, all those sort of things, definitely um, monitored all that. Um, so, yeah, it, it was... 
it was a massive change, you know, being a parent with, you know, once again, not a lot of support, but it was incredibly fulfilling. I hadn't actually experienced anything like it before. And I remember bringing Alex home from the hospital because he had to go into the uh, intensive care unit because he had elevated temperature. And um, bringing him home, I was, it was euphoric. I was like, oh my God, this is, this is what I'm meant to be doing. You know, this is, this is it, you know, this is so, so fulfilling. And um, I guess I haven't really stopped for 17 years in that <laughs> sense. Well done. Um, but but you, yeah, had, but... you had an incredible life experience leading up to that. that mm. You know, you've travelled around the world, done a whole lot of jobs. Accounting has been the consistent, I guess, work skill underpinning mm. all that. Mm-hmm. But you've had a very diverse experience from what you've just explained. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and increase that diversity with your parenting. Um, so, so let's you talk about your life BC and AD, and mm-hmm. uh, tell, <laughs> tell the listeners what that is all about. Yes, I look at my life absolutely in a BC, which is before China, and AD, which is after Dan, my ex-husband. So, uh, the reason why we went to China back in two thousand and twelve, uh, we had three children, uh, one, three, and five, and my ex-husband was traveling a lot with work he was away probably 70 percent of the time he had um, australasia asia pacific was his region he was a ceo for a uh, engineering services company and yeah and his company wanted us to go there and i just i finally relented and i thought well if muhammad's not going to come to the mountain we'll take the mountain to muhammad um and anyway it was a a totally, totally different world there. So, yes, we lived the expat life, which is very privileged life. So we had a really great apartment, a living ID, which is a housekeeper slash nanny, uh, a driver, um, obviously on good uh, benefits in terms of salaries and a, and a hardship allowance and all the rest of it. But the thing is that, Dan, my ex-husband, was still never there. So I'm there with three little kids um, and he was actually working more when we were there than when he would come home. So I'm in this crazy world where I don't understand the language. I've got someone in my house who is looking after my children with me who doesn't speak a word of English and she was hired by Dan and um, his PA I couldn't drive. So there, it was almost, it was like I was doing absolutely everything back in the rule. Um, and the rule being in, in New South Wales. In New South Wales, the rule in New South Wales, New Wollongong. Uh, I was doing everything incredibly, like totally independent. And then as soon as I landed there, all of that was taken away. Someone drove us around, someone got our shopping. Um, I didn't even have control over the money or anything like that. Uh, our internet didn't work. We couldn't speak the language. Every time I went to the market or whatever, I got ripped off. <laughs> it was just lack of skills um, and knowledge and language ability, which is on me for sure. Um, so it was, and also it was a time when our marriage felt just completely fell apart. Um, so I'm there, like no support, no 
um, didn't know the language, making new friends. I didn't want to be the energy vampire and tell them everything that was going on. And it was just absolute hell. Um, but in that, going through all of that, um, that that challenge in this completely alien place, which I have written in the count of, I wouldn't say it's a book. I mean, it's in a book format, but of all the crazy stories that I had with the kids, um, it was almost like, you know, running on this beforehand, running on this treadmill, and you just don't really know what the tread, you know, the speed is. All of us, it just keeps going up and up and up. And then you we went there to Beijing, and I, I kind of like fell off and fell into this kind of, you know, coma, if you like. And then I woke up, and one, you know, one of my friends said you know, I'm really concerned about your emotional health. You've got to do something. And I said, you're right. And within three days I had the kids enrolled in school, the youngest one in daycare, um, told the renters that we were coming home and I just made it all happen. But it was absolutely life-changing, absolutely life-changing, and I don't regret a second of it. I don't regret going there or the lessons or the opportunities and it was I guess one of those life-changing moments so you've been able to take the positives away and, and work out what your strengths are from that process at the time it, it must have felt from a career perspective you're you're in that situation where yours is on hold mm -hmm. and someone else's is still going forward how do you cope with that or you know was that a factor in you know I guess uh, things changing that is such a brilliant question Phil because a lot of people don't ask me that but yes I was in the support role so I was the corporate wife and getting doing everything so that um, Dan could be amazing basically raising the sons and and all the rest of it and it was interesting one of our first dinners there um for welcoming us like you know moving there it was in a private in a restaurant in a private room it was mostly all men except two women and we arrived there so there's me three little boys and if you can imagine in china for many years since the late 80s they had the one child policy except if you live in the country you can have two right. and obviously boys are favored and having three boys well, that's kind of like, you know, superstar status. Like people just think that's amazing. And Dan is holding his, you know, two of his three boys and he's getting the claps and all the rest of it. And there's all these people tapping, you know, hitting the old Chinese people, um, hitting him on the back and saying how amazing he is and worshipping him and I see how he's interacting. And, and I just sat there and I looked and I said, oh, my God, he has chosen all of these people instead of us, to build relationships with because he'd been building relationships with them for years. And and I was thinking, and, and I've been holding the fort, making it together, you know, keeping everything together so that he could do this, so he could be this amazing rock star over here. And, and I, I'll, it's not easy to do well in China. He has Italian background. His dad's Italian. Those two cultures go well together. They have a similar sort of business um, operation, operating style, let's say. <laughs> um, 
So so I commend him on that. He's very good at what he does. Uh, but I'd been in this support role and I I had taken on that that role wholeheartedly. And at the, at the start it was like playing to strength. So I saw it as a partnership and playing to strength so that I was, you know, better with the organisation and that sort of thing and looking after the kids and he was better, um, you know, more high potential earner, if you, if you like. But then when... These things happen, and yes, and the we transitioned out of the marriage relationship. I didn't keep the career fire burning, and this is something I talk a lot about to, in particular, women who are looking at career pause. I did not keep the career fire burning. I didn't keep up with my finance contacts. I had no intention of ever going back into that world. I was a, I did become a certified uh, personal trainer, so I had my own little business on the side when the kids were. With little, and I took it to Beijing too. Had clients there as well, and I was a wellness coach. But that is, yeah, a world away, you know, financially to being a CFO. Um, so yeah, I had to start from the ground up. So the way that I look at that though is, I as I mentioned, I always saw it as a partnership, like Dan and I, like. So it wasn't actually about who's earning more money or who isn't earning money. I always highly, highly valued the role that I had in our partnership of keeping everything together, everything together, because he was away so much. I did everything from tax returns, security, patrol to, you know, school, um, you know, everything to do with school and kids and sport, everything. I was a soccer coach on the cricket committee, you know, all of these things. And he and all Dan did was work. So that was kind of our, how our partnership was. Um, and the interesting thing is he never valued it when we were married. As soon as we uh, transitioned out, he highly valued it. So it took that to, for him to value it. And he he looks back and he values that highly. But, you know, it, it took for him to be out of the both of us to be out of the relationship to actually appreciate each other because it was it took the pressure off our relationship because we had these expectations of each other that were never ever going to be met mm. and it's hard to see that value when you're so close to it every day i guess or not, <laughs> or not. <laughs> i mean yes yes absolutely physically yes we went, um but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Emotionally, yes. Do you, do you think a lot of people um, sort of going back a bit, what I'm thinking about is he, he was all consumed by his work and a lot of people do that. I've been there and mm -hmm. it's easy to fall into that trap of your work defining you perhaps more than it should. That's mm -hmm. something I've, I've discussed um, with Graeme Cowan on this podcast a few mm -hmm. weeks back as well. Mm -hmm. what, what are your thoughts around, I guess, falling into that trap if you think it is a thing that we get too defined by our work and and ignore other aspects of our life, mm, I think that's a really great question because I think a lot about this too. So not only from personal experience, but also with my clients that I work with in terms of um, coaching. So I've been working with a an organisation. I'm coached uh, over forty acting or directors or you know directors in in this organisation and. It it is interesting to see. It's it's interesting. It's not just a one size fits all, and I think it's really important, not, you know, 
not to decontextualize these things. So we have these general sort of rules and and pillars and beliefs around work, well-being, relationships, but it doesn't actually apply to everyone. All of the you know components in, into the equation. Um, I would say that yes, absolutely, there is a real challenge with someone's sense entire sense of worth being tied up in their in their job um, especially if it's a, a role in a specific organization because realistically they're dispensable you know you you could go any second and I think that was one of the other benefits of um you know working in the early 1990s as well because do you remember when um there was a lot of cost cutting, like cutting out middle management, corporatization, um, streamlining, all of those things, and people were getting made redundant everywhere. So, mm. you know, for me, that was a lesson that we're totally dispensable. We're not special or important. We could go at any time. And I think that was really foundational for my career too. And you've, you've hit on, I guess, the topic of the day is, is AI and what's that going to mean for um, not just middle management but, I guess, frontline as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, and I think that's just to quickly go on to me again, I think the attitude that I've always had and why I've had so many roles and so many different roles within finance and then beyond that is that I always tried to streamline my job so that I could pretty much idiot-proof it and pass it on to someone else so I could go on to something more exciting. And I think that is the way, the one of the most helpful ways to look at AI and work in general. So not being attached to being in that specific role, but streamlining that so that you can go on to more opportunities um, and do things more different, you know, differently and and that might float your boat more, you know. Um, but yeah, so I, I think absolutely, you know, but then on the other side of things, people who are strongly tied to their work, I see, I, I find it hard to actually just, you know, say right or wrong and be binary because I've seen amazing things that they've accomplished and continue to accomplish. And I think if someone came in and said to them, well, you shouldn't be so tied to your work, it's all, you know, it's your your only sense of worth, how would that impact what the, out, the outcomes that they've achieved? Some of them, you know, in, incredibly in terms of community um, contribution and positive impact. You know, if you looked at all of those people, I would say the vast majority of them, a lot of their identity is tied up and attached to the work they do. But is that a good thing? I don't know. And I think this is where... And can you do both, I guess? Can you do both is the question. Can you sort of walk and chew gum at the same time? Have that balanced relationships outside as well as being totally focused and effective in what you're doing? Well, you just said the magic word, Phil, balance. So, and that quite simply, is going to be different for each person. So this is where that individual, um, you know, self-knowledge comes in. It says beyond, like, so you've got self-awareness is the ground work, you know, a ground um, grounding. It's actually self-knowledge is, is you know, knowing yourself. Um, and knowing for you what is helpful and what is harmful. Knowing when you're going from helpful to harmful. Knowing when it's time to pull up and rebalance. And that's going to be different for everyone. 
based on their individual operating style, based on their levels of support, their intelligence levels. And when I say intelligence, there are seven basic and then many more types of intelligence. Um, so and and so that is that is the key, and that's actually what I work with on with clients a lot because it's actually working with what you've got, as you mentioned before, like you know the you know your resources, internal and external resources, and knowing who you are, you know your operating style, what work, you know how you work best, what conditions you need to succeed, and leveraging on what's strong about you to be able to achieve that. And when you know all that, you're more likely to know when you're getting to harmful and when you need to pull up. So this sounds like the decoding and then recoding that we alluded to at the start. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So that that decoding, so you know, part, part of the, my work, my, my mission that I went on um, is to understand things like this, like, you know, identity and worth and, and self-worth because I was really really struggling to understand how the women that I was working with and who I had worked with in the past were really challenged to prioritise their well-being. So things like, and this is in particular when I was a personal trainer and wellness coach, uh, things around exercise, nutrition, sleep, uh, doing things for themselves. You know, we might pop that in the self-care bucket, which I'm always hesitant to call it, but, you know, things that are going to enhance your well-being. And so that's when I went on this mission to find out why. So I drew on history, neuroscience, social research and interviews and conversations with over 100 high-performing leaders and that's when I discovered the gender code. So it's a set of default um, rules and expectations that put the genders in different um, boxes. And it's like a societal algorithm which is deeply embedded into our culture. We don't understand it. So I wrote a book on that, so there's a lot more on that. But what I discovered as well is through a conversation with my 12-year-old son is that it is actually not just about the gender code. It's about each person's unique code and how you choose to build it over your lifetime because everything about you, nature, nurture, neuroplasticity, is bundled up into your code. But you can choose what you're going to do with it. You can choose to keep the parts of, the code, of your code that you love and honour, delete the parts that don't make any sense and create new code so that you are in charge. And from the leaders you've worked with, are there any interesting case studies or examples that spring to mind how someone has taken something and maybe done a little bit of recoding to, to produce a, a better outcome? Oh, absolutely. Every single one of them um, has done that over their lifetime. And for some, it has taken a breakdown, burnout and breakdown uh, to reevaluate. For some, I, I remember one woman in particular, she works for an international bank. She's a COO. She's now in uh, Singapore, I think, or something. Um, for her, it was a course that was offered by this bank on uh, resilience training for people. And this was probably about 10, 15 years ago. And she was like, I'm not doing any resilience training because she was like, um, she was just her and her spreadsheets. She said that's all it was. It was no interaction with others or anything like that. And she's like, I'm not doing this resilience course, but they made her do it. And she found 
after going through some of the, you know, the exercises and the practices of what's most important, things about relationships and interactions and stuff, she hit this wall as if all of this stuff had just, it's like, oh, my God, and she just, her cortisol levels just dipped and she fell into a heap. But slowly she built back up and she completely transformed. Now she um, uh, is the spokesperson for the company around well-being and and health and she speaks to everyone about that, makes these connections. And she said that after going through that process, that, you know, recoding process um, and investing more in relationships, it has catapulted her career because she's made all of these connections, had all these conversations. People are queuing up to be in her team. She has a long list of people who want to be mentored by her and her her, um, bosses and leaders, which I don't don't actually think there's many more people above her now, um, are, you know, so keen to promote her and involve her in the, you know, exciting projects. That's a great example. And it's clearly all down to you. (laughs) No, I was not coaching her at the time. I just, I was so, so fortunate to have an interview with her through another through a connection I'd made in the well-being space because well-being is a big thing for her. So yeah. Yeah, wonderful. So when you look across all the people you work with, you say everyone's different. Yes. Mm-hmm. You must see some common tension points arise and you mentioned burnout then. Um what what are the other common factors you see coming up for people? Oh, I love this question. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting, like I mentioned, you know, having that cohort of 40, being in an organisation that most people are there because they are purpose-driven, uh, the same things are underlying all the time. So it, a lot of it is around, um, we say boundaries, but it, it's the, the the bias towards focusing on other people's needs other than their own. So challenges with saying no in general. Uh, challenges with prioritising things like, you know, fitness, um, you know, healthy eating, mostly fitness. I would say exercise, definitely 90% struggle with that. Um, Self-doubt, you know, I I guess that's no surprise, a big one. For women in particular, conforming to ideas of perfectionism, Um, they're the big ones. what else? So many common common themes. Um, just can't quite think of the moment. But the the, the self doubt one is one of the one of the biggest ones. I think that is at the heart of a lot of the challenges. So men, of course, experience this as well. Uh, I hear it more from women, um, and we can talk about. I might be controversial, but uh, it, it, there's a you know a lot of people involved bought into the imposter syndrome you know label. Um, for some people, it is crippling, and it is a challenge. My thoughts are, and these aren't just based on you know what I think about me, but it it's based on all the work that I've done, the research that it's actually healthy and natural to have self doubt when you step into a new arena where you're building, it's not confidence, it's more than confidence, it's building that self-knowledge and that evidence that you can do something. Anytime we try something different, we've got to build evidence, you know, to, to support the idea that we can do it. So 
instead of sort of looking straight to the, oh, I can't do this, I've got imposter syndrome, it's actually recognising actually my mind, body and brain are working hard here together to protect me. So they're actually telling me, they're using this imposter syndrome, this doubting voice to protect me from emotional, mental and physical pain and suffering. So that's okay, you know, that's that's totally natural and that's okay. But I'm actually going to build some evidence here. I need to start building this evidence that I can do this thing and put it in this self-knowledge data bank. And when you make a habit of doing that, building, um, you know, evidence of why you can do something, then anytime that self-doubt happens, instead of listening to that voice that says you can't, you can look at what you've got in that in that data bank and then engage with your inner coach instead of your inner critic. And your inner coach can help you get through it. And this, no doubt, I, I presume is discussed and maybe spelled out in your book, The Gender Code. Is that right? Yes, it is yep. in my book. Yeah, I've got a framework in there which helps Excellent. with that. So we'll put the links to that and, and your website there. And what I understand is that framework really is, uh, is applicable to just about any change situation. Mm, absolutely. Uh, it, I, it, it is applicable to everything. And I have a another one called the uh, CAP framework, which is C-A-A-P, Curiosity, uh, Acceptance, Ask and Prioritisation. That's a much more simple one. That's not in the book, but it, it's in all my keynotes. And, It'll be and, your next uh, book, right? Yeah, next book. <laughs> Maybe slim down version of um, the book, just all the best bits. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, that that's something that you can apply to absolutely anything, to teams, to individuals, talking to yourself, um, all those things. It's a universal application. Yeah, excellent. Well, I'm going to finish up now with our three quick questions that mm-hmm. I ask every guest, and um, the first one is: What contributes to your sense of purpose? Being who I am. That's what it is. It, it's interesting for for. You know, my whole life I was trying to find you know, up until I became a parent, what is the thing that I'm good at? What is it? What is the thing I'm amazing at? I was I was good amongst the best of things but never the best. So it's like what is it? What's that thing? And I actually realised that what it is is being who I am, using my strengths and skills, giving 100% to whatever I do, and that provides fulfilment, purpose and meaning for me. That's great. And probably a bit of a left-field answer compared to the uh... – the most of the answers we've had from our guests so far. So big gold star for that. <laughs> um, second question, what are you looking forward to from here? Mm, that's a great question. I've just turned 50 on the weekend, so I feel like half my life so far. Congratulations. <laughs> well, you don't know how long we're going to live now. Maybe we'll live for 150. That's, yeah, I might uh, do. We'll see. Oh, could you imagine? Could you imagine still running, Phil? <laughs> yeah, I'm not, not sure I'll be running too fast at 150. <laughs> Um, what am I looking forward to? I, just every day, I think, actually. I I'm really am looking forward to what every day um, presents. Every day is a new day. I'm looking forward to my children growing, getting get to the next stage. And I'm actually really looking forward to seeing where things go with my career, with a, a startup I'm working with and also uh, for women's health, uh, Sage Women's Health, and then also my own um, speaking, coaching, and facilitating. Every day is an adventure, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, finally, 
if you could go back in time and give some advice to your younger self about living a, a good, happy, prosperous, meaningful life, what what would that advice be? It would. It actually would be keeping who you are. Like it. It really is like the the the, mo- the biggest gift I think we can give ourselves is to really find out who we are, which is a never ending um, adventure. Find out who we are and be who we are in everything we we do because that builds the confidence to bring the best of who we are to everything that we do and build our own code. And it, it must be a an ongoing thing. It's not a static Mm-mm. thing that you say, I've figured out who I am and, and that will be a constant for the rest of my life. It's going to evolve. Absolutely. And this is the thing. So when you know I talk about building your own code, so understanding your code and building it, you know, over your lifetime, what happens is these transition phases that are thrust on us and we, you know, causing us stress. So, you know, whether that's, you know, teenagehood, parenthood, you know, divorce, um, death, menopause, all of these, you know, big life transitions, every time they happen, if we rebuild, you know, evolve our code effectively, it becomes the foundation, the baseline for the next time these things happen. So we don't need to be as scared and worried and stressful because we're building and strengthening our code. And the only way to do that is to have that self-knowledge, that high level of self-respect so that we can be self-compassionate and accepting every time it happens. Well, Danielle, thanks for coming onto the show and in doing so being yourself and being who you are. (laughs) And I'm sure there's lots of takeaways for our listeners. So uh, thanks very much for for taking the time to come on. Thanks, Phil. It was really fun and an absolute gift to be listened to. So we're going to take a couple of seconds break and then I'll come back with some key observations about our discussion, which was really illuminating. So stay tuned for that. I guess Daniel took us on a bit of a journey there, starting with um, playing ruck as a as a youngster um, against some young lads who thought uh, she'd be easy pickings in the in the ruck, but that fired her up. Um, through to moving to the big city, then doing a bit of a tour of global cities, and uh, maybe maybe the meta theme here is her exploration went from geographical to personal over time. So that's getting a bit deep, isn't it? Well, the three things that stood out for me um, were. One, um, challenges in her life situation, and uh, it's very funny talking about BC and AD, before China and after Dan. Um, There was a point where she had clarity of what was really going on and took control of that. And I would say that was her decoding and recoding her own story. So there you go, wrapping a nice little bar around that one. Point number two, uh, the common challenges she uh, said she sees in in the um, people she mentors or coaches and I think the top three were burnout, not looking after physical health and prioritizing other people's stuff too much. So if that's you, you're not alone. It's good to know there's others out there doing the same thing. And um, although she started her work life, I guess 2.0, after the China experience and all that, and she was focusing on gender codes in that as well, the core methodology seems to apply to nearly all situations have changed so that's interesting and point three don't be passive about networks Um, know who is who be curious what are the rules or parameters in the network i think that was great advice 
and therefore you can take a bit of control and take personal action in terms of growing your networks with those tips in mind. So you'll find links to her website and her stuff in the show notes as well as my contact details should you wish to get in touch. I'm Phil Preston and see you next week for another episode of The Purpose Edge.